We're back. We're back. Somehow, Greg. We're back. Somehow. <laughs> Yet again, they've let us do one more of these things. I can't really believe it, to be fair, but... Uh, you know, I always think the next one's going to be the last one. You know what I mean? I mean, after the one before, you're kind of like, well. This could be it, buddy. This could be it. This could be the beginning of the end. Who knows? Could be. Every one of them. Every one of them. You know, but uh, anyway, welcome to yet another episode of Inside the Echo Chamber. Uh, my name's Andy. That's Greg coming to you live on tape from Chicago and Toronto after yet another hiatus. This one was a short one, though. Right, Greg? I mean, we kind of, we were traveling the world, doing fun stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely a short hiatus. I think the next one we could do better. We can do a longer gap. I know that. You think so? Yeah. That next <laughs> hiatus is going to blow your mind. It's be great. Anyway, what have you been up to, Greg? What are you doing this morning? Oh, we're what's, all just. Uh, what's on the docket? We're all just getting the parade ready for the Stanley Cup win. That's what's happening. <laughs> Hopes are high. Hopefully, hopefully by the time you. Yeah, hopefully by the time you guys all hear this podcast, they're not eliminated, but uh, made it to the second round here, Andy. <laughs> second round of the NHL playoffs for the good old Toronto Maple Leafs. i give a little context the last time this happened, why we're all excited here. The last time the Toronto Maple Leafs made it to the second round, I was 24 years old and I had a full head of hair. So it's been a while. It's been a hot oh, minute. Oh, my word. Let's just say that. Yeah. Well, I've never even seen that, to be fair, either of those things. Exactly. So, yeah, it's been a while. You know what they say? Well, actually, it's what you say all the time, Greg, if I'm honest. The hope that kills you. It's, right? it's and, definitely uh, the hope that kills you, being a Leafs fan. I'll tell you that. The only thing we got going for is those evil Boston Bruins got eliminated. They are the bane of our true. existence true. here in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly opens up the path for you guys to, yeah. uh, you know, get beat in the second round by a non-number one well, seed. That's cool. You we know. just have to eliminate the whole state of Florida <laughs> to make it to the third round. You know, we already got through Tampa Bay. Now we just got to do all. the Florida Panthers. That's yeah. it. Anyway, look, today's podcast, Greg, it's a pretty unique one. A glimpse into the world of uh, VC. To, uh, what's VC stand for again? Venture Capital. Thanks, buddy. That's it. You know, something that's always been a mystery to me. Hopefully it's a little, you know, it'll be a little less of a mystery after this uh, conversation today. If it's all right with you, Greg, let's just get right into it. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and we'll catch you on the flip side here. All right, everybody. Uh, today's guest is a heavy hitter, at least as far as Greg and I are concerned, in the world of VC. And for uh, full disclosure, someone we know uh, you know, from his time working with uh, Echo as an investor in one of his previous roles, got William Abacassis on the podcast with us today. To give you a little background, William is currently the managing partner and chief investment officer at Raven Partners. William founded it after more than 20 years leading technology and innovation investments with firms like Bridgewater and BlackRock. And he launched Raven to focus on, uh, you know, kind of transform transformational early stage opportunities that, that he felt required, you know, kind of deeper engagement than uh, what traditional VC was structured to support. So just to provide a little bit of scope to the kind of funds under his direction, kinds of money that Greg and I have no hope in our entire lives ever to come close to. But uh, while at BlackRock, he was the founder of the Innovation Capital Group, where he led uh, over a billion dollars of investments in, in over 25 early stage startups. And, and in that role, of course, you know, he worked closely with companies, both as an engaged board member and as an advisor, ultimately leading uh, eight of those uh, portfolio companies to successful IPOs. So a pretty good track record, I'd say, in uh, deciding you know, what, what companies ha have a, a strong and bright future, you know, and, uh, William, did, did I, did I get all that right? Or, uh, did I miss anything that's more impressive than that? I don't know. That's, uh, <laughs> it's up there in our book. What do you think? 
Listen, that, that that's great, and thank you for for having me. And yeah, oh, that's right. I, um, <laughs> you know, I'm just fortunate to be also not the right institutions where you have the the opportunity to really apply a vision at scale. And BlackRock gave me that prior to that at Bridgewater. So um, really, much less about me and much more about you know kind of being in the right environment. Some pretty big names out there, and I'm sure. I'm sure everybody is interested to see behind the curtain. There's a lot of mystique and a lot of uh, maybe preconceived conceptions about the VC world and and what it actually is and what it entails. Uh, Andy and I have been fortunate enough to get exposed to that, but not everybody has. And so it's great to have a conversation with you today, William, and you can give us some of that background inside baseball and really help (laughs) educate us on the world of the VC so maybe right. maybe you could start here just about how did you get into this world? What was your entry into the VC world? I consider myself an outsider. I, I've heard in the past folks um, speak about you know a non-traditional entry point into venture. I, certainly, my background is non-traditional. I've spent zero time in Silicon Valley. I've uh, I've um, been deeply involved in technology and the applications of technology and go into that um, through through my career. But even my mindset around business building, around investment, was built out with almost an ignorance of the traditional, you know, power law dynamic models. And it was really about what a, 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 a typical, maybe even later stage investor and certainly also how a commercial manager might look at ROI and in situations of high degree of uncertainty, decide how much capital and human capital, so attention to apply to a portfolio of opportunities with an idea that some are bigger than others, some have um, different strategic value versus others. And some also give you an opportunity to adjust their probabilities of success through your action as you undertake kind of the the, the path forward. And so if you think of the inspiration for me and the education around Raven and my framework for investing, has been much more akin to the folks running projects at a skunk works, like at a Lockheed Martin, or mm-hmm, yep. looking at a portfolio of drug candidates and the real option paths around managing that portfolio versus let me connect into an ecosystem of very bright people, bring you know, um, a whole scatter of particular opportunities and then apply some filtering mechanism with an idea that, you know, one or two in 10 will really be the big outliers and that justify the whole effort. And so that I think positions my thinking sometimes at odds with the, you know, what, what, what I guess is a stereotypical approach in, in venture. And so it means that there is a certain opportunity set that you're just not aligned with. That is, can be a great opportunity set too. And, uh, but it also means that there are, the, the, the corollary is that there are opportunities that others will not look towards, may seem more complicated, may not seem aligned 
with the traditional model that we think are big, that I think are big, and that the team we built think that are big and that are that are worth pursuing. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I, you know, I know you've you've spent a lot of time specifically now, you know, in healthcare, right? What is it that you know? Is there something specific that you look for, you know, in a company, you know, in the healthcare space? If we want to just get straight to it, you know, when you're considering investing. Yes, healthcare, just as an industry, is one of these that our approach to to, to investing naturally gravitate towards. And and the reason for that is, listen, we all know the figure is $4.3 trillion part of the, of the economy. So the value there, we've all felt the inefficiencies of the system. We can feel it as on the patient side, but if you ask every stakeholder from a payer to physician to life science researchers, like is this close to the optimal way of this operating? And they will right. all give you a very obvious no. But then people raise their shoulders and they're like, but it's a system, like I can't change it on my own. And it's healthcare has this very tricky dynamic of in one sense at the, you know, almost reactive level, you're like, this could be better. And in kind of the folks who've, just gone in certainly blindly or with maybe untainted optimism at trying to make it better and using the the traditional playbooks around technology coming out on the other side, basically defeated. And that shouldn't be that way. And I think that to maybe answer your question, the approach with healthcare is more than just technology being applied to an end consumer. It's an entire ecosystem of stakeholders coordinating around the provision of a service with, where each have their economic incentives. They have the technology and what allow, that allows them to do and not do. And this all operates within a regulatory framework where actually the cost of mistakes is very high. It could be life or death. Right. Sure. And so if you're going to approach innovation in that context, you have to be mindful of that. It, you, it's much harder. It happens sometimes. Some, somewhere people find basically leaf nodes in the tree that they can apply kind of technology to and, and you know, you right. get a better, let's say, consumer view of your, your, your medical chart. But if you're actually working in the network and your solution and the opportunity is in the network, you need to think of it beyond just the application of the technology, but also who wins, who loses for the folks who lose. Right. How do you realign their interests so that they're, willing to go along or right, uh, right. if you can't at least circumvent the resistance that you will for sure encounter with them. And again, do that in a coordinated fashion such that it works within the regulatory regime. And sure. so now to answer your question specifically, when I look at healthcare companies, I like companies that are going after these big opportunities, but are doing it in a way that is cognizant of the layers, the technology right. innovation, the economic incentive, business model restructuring, the regulatory, maybe there's some other kind of legal elements, 
And if they have a clear vision around that, and it seems that it can be divided and conquered in a way that is achievable in a stepwise fashion, then I get very excited. Yeah. Sure. Makes sense. That's, that's, a, that's a great way to look at it. It is very complex in healthcare. What you're describing there, William, is almost like you're looking for people that know how to play four-dimensional chess to get to the out- outcome that you, <laughs> that you need in healthcare there. There's so many stakeholders. There's a lot of work that was done starting in the 70s with Jay Forrester and systems dynamics and systems thinking. And it's um, unfortunately, it's much more intuitive to approach problems from kind of a linear pathway without really playing out what could happen there, what's called the emerging dynamics when you have different people adjusting to what their peers are doing, what their competitors are doing. But that's all, there's kind of a body of work and practice around systems thinking, game theory, economic equilibriums, and so on. And so I think it's just that we need to, it's, it's not that you need to have these super brains who can play for multidimensional chess. It's just you just have to bring together a different set of tools and the folks who have that expertise into the solution into the solutioning of the problem and not have it as an afterthought. Right. right. Very well said. Something I've heard you talk about before is, is intellectual honesty. And, and I wonder, how does that look when you're thinking about investing? Yeah, it's kind of more of a personal thing, right? Almost. Right. <laughs> We've talked about, you know, the company and kind of that a macro level for these companies. But yeah, it's, it, there's their people, right? And, and what, what, what do you look for there? Yeah. Well, that's where I, I certainly in the earlier part of my career had the, the opportunity to see what happens if you don't apply humility in kind of your perception of things. So that's what I mean by, by, by intellectual honesty and kind of basically kind of the outcome of banging your head against the wall versus actually maybe stepping back and realizing that there's a side passage that you can take. And so that started for me in consulting and seeing the pros, seeing it play out when folks really are beating on the table without taking the time to consider if they are right or wrong and what the alternatives are. That was hammered in me at my time at a firm like Bridgewater. And it would be at any sort of, I think, investment firm that is in the liquid markets where you get a very low latency response to being right or wrong, where you effectively, if you don't have intellectual property, yes, maybe by luck, sometimes you will be right. And it, it will give you positive feedback that you're thinking, you should do more of the thinking that you're doing. Inevitably, you will also be wrong. And the faster you could recognize that you could be potentially wrong and then adjust your thinking and your strategy based on that insight, the more successful you are likely to be. And so the founder universe is like, again, capital markets, the challenging, there's you know an advantage and also a challenge though, investing in public markets, you have very little ability to affect the outcome of the targeting that you're investing in. Because it's a company, it's a public company, you have the same information as everyone. You're not, unless maybe you're an activist, you don't really have an opportunity to change their course of action. Whereas as an investor, 
or as a founder or someone who is a key stakeholder within a private startup, you do have, you should have the ability to do that. So that's kind of the positive. The negative is that your feedback loop is much slower. And so you really have to be thinking about how to create proxies that are meaningful for yourself to accelerate that feedback loop. Because certainly at, you know, for the past years, let's say the traditional 18 to 24 months of runway, if you use six months to do an experiment or 12 months to apply an experiment, that's half your runway. Imagine if you could right. instead put in place the mechanisms such that you'll have a high confidence as to whether what you're doing is working or not working within two months instead, then you can try multiple strategies. And that's kind of the fail fast approach that many have, have, have spoken to and what you see in the best founders. The best founders create a culture such that there's experimentation no specific strategy or a fact is taken as a given in dogma. It's validated by the evidence and seen in probabilistic terms. And the machinery to detect where the assumptions, the reality is diverging for the assumptions, is highly tuned to pick up that the divergence as quickly as possible and have the company be able to react and respond to it. That makes huge sense. It is funny, though, you know, I think all of us could probably look back at different roles we've had, different jobs, whatever it might be, in, you know, whether it's in a small company or in a large one. And you think about, and you can even, I mean, I, I could right now, I could sit there and think about people I've worked with, myself, you know, whatever, and think of examples where you're dead sure this is the way to go. And, you know, you push forward with it. Maybe you find out it's not, but by the time you find out it's not, kind of like you've described, you know, maybe you're past a window of opportunity or, or, you know, you've, you've, you know, you've done some kind of damage one way or the other to your, your, yourself or your company. And, and, uh, it's a really important thing that I think makes very crystal clear sense when you say it, like you've just said it, but that not enough people do right. And really think about the scenarios and the possibilities of what, what's coming around the corner. That's really interesting. And behaviorally, it's just so much more enticing to just do an act <laughs> right. immediately and I think the entrepreneur needs to do some of that and because they can't pre-plan in the same way that you would kind of build a building, the full architecture, right. design and engineering steps, right? right? Because uncertainty of the future, product microfit, all these things are somewhat uncertain. There needs to be mm-hmm. an adjustment. But so I want to be clear, it's not about trying to plan the full execution of the startup from the get-go before you get going. But it's in planning the culture and the mechanisms, basically the experimental design that you're going to execute on that is going to drive you to converge towards with a higher probability towards a successful solution. And so that is, I think, the thing that not enough people do up front. And it's also the thing that in healthcare is more complex than, say, in enterprise SaaS where the, the directive and the playbooks through just the sheer number of companies that have done it are have converged towards a much more manageable set of success patterns or best practices. William, I was wondering if you could, you had touched on it at the beginning here, and I wonder if you could just dive in a little deeper on, you know, your company, Braven, why you founded it, and how your approach is, is different. I know you touched on it a bit at the beginning, but I'd love you to expand on that. I think one of the one of the things that hurts us all in the industry 
is that folks refer to venture capital and venture capital opportunities, maybe they mostly in the same way, assuming a high degree of homogeneity around them. And maybe, you know, we've now segmented a little bit between kind of early stage and, and later stage. And certainly there's deep tech where folks really identify the, the driver of, of risk as like scientific or technical versus like execution in, in, in maybe some, some, uh, some other areas. But I think in reality, it's important to segment beyond that. And the main segmentation that I'm thinking of is what we call companies that operate in a world where the system has to be created and where success is around creating actually what we like to call internally as a minimal viable ecosystem. Right. So a set of players who connect together in a way that is enabled by, let's say, better technology or just a different application of that technology, but it also reinforced through economic incentives, legal structures, and so on. exactly how healthcare is, payer, provider, right. patient, regulated, like, mm-hmm. versus what we call unit innovation, where it's a much more linear path. There's a product or service creator and provider who mostly has a bilateral relationship with his end user. And there, the feedback loop is the one that we know, you know, probably incredibly optimized by innovators like Y Combinator, right? Come in, start with your idea, find your early customer, establish that feedback loop as quickly and cheaply as you can to hit product market fit. And once you have that, we know we can deploy capital against the go to market because with product market fit, you know, someone is going to be willing to pay for it, right? And depending, you know, on the number of parameters, which particular product, sorry, go to market strategy, product like growth, account-based market, right? right each, each one, but that is a, it starts with that bilateral relationship. And in these are op- the opportunities that we're going after product market fit cannot be established through a bilateral relationship. It requires that minimal viable ecosystem to get going. The zero to one is to establish that ecosystem. And that ecosystem might be three stakeholders. And to think in healthcare, it might be payer, provider, and, and, and patient. It might be pharma, payer. <laughs> but you yeah. need to establish that ecosystem. And for that, it's a different set of skills because it's not just interviewing. You need to think about, okay, typically there's some economic element of it. How am I going to break up economics so that everybody's incentivized to do what they want to do? And so we think there is a massive underserved opportunity within healthcare, also within other industries, in the financial services industry, insurance, and industrials. These are, again, more complex, multi-stakeholder type of business models that exist that have gotten, for the most part, what we think are superficial, like digital facelifts, I like to call them, around taking either a manual process, one where there was much more of a human in the loop versus maybe some other cognitive machine intelligence in in the loop, and just upgraded and doing mostly the same thing, but maybe now through your phone or maybe now with a little bit more help from a chatbot or something like that, as opposed to reconfiguring how it works. Mm-hmm. 
And we want to go after the opportunities where you can reconfigure. And my best example of that, the one is, is not in healthcare, is one that we all know we're all touched by, is MasterCard. Right. Interesting. Yeah. You could have approached MasterCard as an innovation by first starting with the idea that, oh, there's new transactional technology. I can process records faster than anybody else or so on. But really, the success of MasterCard came by having a group of banks aligned around how this is going to work as a network and effectively setting for themselves, well, okay, well, if there's X amount of value that's going to come from processing a transaction, so much goes to the issuing bank and so much goes to the acquiring bank and so much goes to the network. And making sure that everyone feels good about that and also doesn't feel that they are now spawning their competitor by being there and on the cap. So there was a financial structuring problem. It was legal. There was a gun ownership structuring problem. There was a technology problem to solve. But you, the solution was the layering of all these things. And now... Like, how has that changed all of our lives? How much value has been, like, these companies, these are they're so valued because of the value that they create for, for, for everybody and their centrality in the network. But you have to design it. It doesn't have to be that way. But I think there's plenty of problems that go from zero to one if you can design them as a system as opposed to design them as a technology looking for product market fit. You will have a much higher probability of success. Yeah, to your point, I mean, it, it's the the ecosystem is equally as important, right? As is your point, as that any technology. So you can have that technology, and sure, there are a lot of companies that have succeeded based on a technology alone, right? But if if you can combine them both, you have a transformational, potentially anyway, a transformational product or or company, right? And that's maybe one of the things that I I certainly appreciated at Echo in the early days of the discussion, the recognition that yes, there's, you know, I'm biased in saying this, kind of a superior technology around the imaging and the sensor and that what that will enable, but that's not enough. You need to frame that in the context of how does this integrate in the workflows and what, you know, a physician in an emergency room versus somewhere else is able to do, is willing to do, is incentivized to do, how do I map out those points of friction, again, align incentives across the players and where I have the ability to use technology or engineering or software to use, a, you know, kind of human computer interfaces to basically lower the points of friction. I can be very strategic about where I apply that and how I engage with folks to, again, create a minimal viable ecosystem. And sure. if you succeed at that, then you really have, again, you've aligned everyone. So everybody is now looking for it to succeed as opposed to just applying the, the healthcare analogy doing kind of organ rejection because now you're the new disruptor trying to disrupt, <laughs> you know, kind of exactly. um, the party. No one right. wants that in healthcare right. and you have multiple stakeholders. So any one of them saying, no, we don't want you at the table means that you're going to be capped in your, your ability to succeed. Makes perfect sense. Well, we're almost done here. I know, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time already here today. We really appreciate it. But 
Before we go, the question that's on everybody's mind all over this place, all over the world, frankly, and you're the guy to answer it. When is the IPO market going to turn back on here? When are we going to see a, a turnaround in kind of the investment side of things and kind of cutting back on those down rounds, all of that stuff? When When's it going to turn around for us all? I mean, thank you for putting me on, on the, the hot seat. I've learned long ago <laughs> not to try and time the market and rather to focus on strategies that are resilient to the business cycle, the economic right. markets cycle. That said, I think it's important to note that ultimately over the long term, what should drive investment interest in innovative companies is their expected return over the cost of capital. Mm-hmm. And so at a cost of capital of risk-free rate, roughly 5%, the historically what we see innovative companies do is compound at a rate that is much higher than that. Right. And so right. what I feel is going on today, certainly long-term, as long as there's, there's that differential, I feel that there will be movement, eventual mm-hmm. movement, of that capital away from that 5% into these higher growth opportunities. So why isn't that happening? There's the boiling frog problem that you can think of. <laughs> when the rate of change around the cost of capital is very fast, everyone responds to it. We've had one of the fastest rate hike cycles in a long time. We've all felt it from a very probably, again, an outlier, easy, capital environment to the fastest rate cycle. (laughs) The other way around, yeah. (laughs) The change has been very fast and that affects everybody's sentiment. The absolute numbers being at 5% risk-free rate is not an outlier. And in the context of the past few decades is actually, again, nothing that should be straining innovation. I don't have the, 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 the chart in front of me, but it's on the lower end of, of the range that we certainly see if you could bring in the eight sure. into this. And so I think this is really more about habituation and people getting used to now this new level. And we've seen already that the rate of change has decelerated substantially. Mm-hmm. And so Without calling it, I'd be surprised if we're not seeing an inflection point in sentiment, you know, within 12 months. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but again, that would be a, a low probability guess. As a company, as an investor, I'd rather be structuring an investment strategy, a business strategy, knowing that uh, under the assumption that it's a tight environment until I see otherwise. But I wouldn't call into question kind of the structural validity of these investments generally. Right. Actually, I'd, I'd probably be a little bit more opportunistic certainly as an investor and maybe even as a company through acquisitions to use right. this express sentiment to reinforce my position. Great response and frankly, uh, an optimistic one that I think everybody should be happy to hear. You know, that's that's good news in every sense of the word. So uh, I'd say it with intellectual humility. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. Like this, this whole conversation, I've been feeling my my IQ go up the longer I talk to you. I was going to say, yeah, some, some great information, and gotten a lot. Yeah, I don't know here. if he offers personal coaching sessions or, or what or what that rate is an hour. But uh, Listen, I'm always happy to chat. Sign me up. I, yeah. The questions help me think through things. We're, we're lucky that we also have within Brave an, an, an amazing team that's been coming together that drives each other to think through these questions. 
as well and how it can affect our organization and our strategy. And I know that at, at, uh, at ECHO, there's been similar debates. I've been in some of those debates. And so um, sure. thank you for ha- having me as well. No, it's been great, William. We appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, we know your time is valuable and uh, we're just thrilled you spent a little bit with us. So we will talk to you very soon and, and appreciate you, uh, you joining us today. Thanks again, William. Thanks for having me. Well, as usual, you know, our, uh, our guest booking department has, uh, has hit a winner. We appreciate that from William, from taking the time to talk with us. That was pretty interesting. I, I, you know, personally, I just love the fact that he's got hope for the future. I know in this world, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of consternation, a lot of worry about where things are going and, and uh, how long it's going to take to get out of the funk that, that folks are in right now. But it's all about the pace of change, it sounds like. And, you know, just like the pace can, of change can, can be very fast and things can happen quickly in a somewhat negative sense, I, uh, I think that people have prepared for that and maybe are, are able to turn that around and, and maybe will change quickly in the positive sense as well, you know. That's it. That's all you have to say. Nothing else. <laughs> Nothing else from you. From me? Oh, I, w- I agree with you, Andy. There's, there's uh, change is ever changing. That's for sure. We've learned that a lot in just the last four years here. I guess to keep to our theme of you know hockey, I'm high on the hockey right now. You know, you, you got to go where the puck is going, not where the puck is. You know, that's where you got to be. Yeah, fair enough. Got to anticipate. Good rules to live by. Anyway, as always, Greg, uh, it's been fun, hasn't it, today? I think, uh, you know, it's entertaining. I've, I've enjoyed myself thoroughly. I don't know about you. Really? But, uh, Would you say that you've had the time of your life, Andy? <laughs> there it is. Yeah? You want to sing, sing a little Bill, Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes? Yeah? Give me a little. Now I've had the time, time of, of my, my life. life. No, I never felt like this before. before. Yes, I I swear. swear. Oh, we're done. Okay, sorry. It's the truth. Anyway, listen, everybody. (laughs) Greg's in a good mood. You can tell Greg's in a great mood today. I've been in worse moods, so hey, what the heck. Until next time, everybody, thanks for listening. Talk to you guys all later. Peace out.